This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 248th episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this is now but one of three podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters podcast network. The others being It Happened in Hollywood, on which Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope take deep dives into major pop culture moments in Hollywood history, and Behind the Screen, featuring Carolyn Giardina's conversations with the artists who work behind the scenes on awards contenders. Be sure you're subscribed to all three today. My guest today is Steve McQueen, a British artist and filmmaker best known as the director and producer of the 2013 film 12 Years a Slave, for which he was nominated for the Best Director Oscar and became the first black winner of the Best Picture Oscar. He also co-wrote and directed the 2008 film Hunger and the 2011 film Shame, both of which, like 12 Years a Slave, starred his close friend and collaborator Michael Fassbender. Most recently, he co-wrote and directed an elevated heist thriller called Widows, featuring an all-star ensemble cast led by Oscar winner Viola Davis. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival back in September, and it will open across America on Friday. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, the 49-year-old and I discussed his humble upbringing and discovery of the arts, his early work as a maker of experimental short films, and his transition into narrative feature-length filmmaking, his close relationship with Fassbender and their three films together, and what, since 12 Years a Slave's big Oscar night, has transpired both in the film industry, with two seasons of Oscar So White followed by Moonlight's big win, and in his own life, leading him to Widows, a film with a far bigger budget at $40 million and far more action sequences, all very impressive, than anything he had ever done before. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Matthew Heineman, the 35-year-old filmmaker best known for directing two powerful documentaries, 2015's Cartel Land, in which he went deep inside the drug war along the U.S.-Mexico border, and 2017's City of Ghosts, in which he followed citizen journalists risking their lives to report on life in war-torn Syria. His newest film, Private War, is the first narrative feature that he has directed. It stars the Oscar-nominated actress Rosamund Pike as the great American war correspondent Marie Colvin, who covered many of the major war zones of the 80s, 90s, and first decade of the 21st century. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, it has accumulated rave reviews since then, and it opens in theaters across the country on Friday. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. So having made these two tremendously powerful documentaries, what made you decide to venture into narrative filmmaking for the first time? Was it something that was always on the to-do list? 
No, <laughs> I think, you know, I love making docs. I'll continue to make docs. You know, I was just deeply moved by the story and I received an early draft of the script. It spoke to me in such a profound way that I felt like I, you know, I had to, had to make this film and, and obviously, you know, she's no longer with us. And, you know, so it was, it was clear that it needed to be done in the form of a, a narrative. How did you first even come to know about Marie Colvin? I think that like her, it now kind of makes sense because like her, you have a fearlessness about your work. And anyone who's seen either of the two documentaries that I mentioned can tell that right away because you put yourself in harm's way to tell important stories just as she did. So it makes sense that her story might connect with you, but how did it first cross your radar? She, like I, have, have tried to tell stories about, you know, really complicated war zones and, and attempted to at least put a human face to them. So I think sort of... In a sense, we are kindred spirits in that way. You know, in, in my documentaries, I've been in conflict zones. I've, I've been shot at. I've been in meth labs and torture chambers and all sorts of places I never could have ever imagined being in. And so I felt that same draw to covering these stories. But simultaneously, that's, you know, bizarre feeling of coming home to New York City and being at a party the next night. And so it just in many different ways, I felt, you know, a huge connection to her. I never knew her personally. I obviously knew of her, but, you know, it felt like the perfect first film for me. One theme that runs through all of the films that we've mentioned and even other things that you've done that maybe aren't as well-known or widely seen, but for instance, even the 30 for 30 short that you did for ESPN about the 1968 Olympics and the famous fist raising incident, it seems like courage is a theme, a subject that you are really drawn to and practice. Why might that be? I don't know. I, I think I like finding stories about individuals who are, you know, fighting for something and, and I think or fighting against something. And I think, you know, when I made Cartel and I, I thought this was a story about freedom fighters rising up to fight against the evil cartels. Little did I know that, you know, those who are fighting against evil would become evil. And in City of Ghosts, I... I made a story about a group of individuals rising up to expose the atrocities of ISIS. Thankfully, they didn't become, become yeah. evil, and that, that's actually a, you know, a, a positive story. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm just moved by, by people who are up against something and you know, risking their lives to pursue what, what, you know, what, what they believe is, is important. And you know, in the case of Marie Colvin, you know, she risked her life time and time again to go to the most dangerous places on Earth to tell stories that people weren't telling, to give voice to the voiceless, to put a human face to these conflicts. And I think she suffered immensely as a result of that. And so for me, this film is not a biopic. This film is not a sort of cradle-to-grave story. It's a, it's a, in some sense, maybe a, a psychological thriller examining what, what really pushes somebody and drives somebody to go to these places. Why did she do this? And then also, you know, the effects that that had on her. So that, I think, begs the question for... For you, because you both have chosen to put yourselves in these kinds of situations and served important causes and helped to highlight important issues. But what is it about her and about you that would make you guys run towards something that 99 out of 100 other people would run in the other direction from? And then also, do you feel like you have in some ways paid the price for having done that in the similar way that Marie did, where it just kind of it never lets you go, really? I mean, I don't I don't love talking about myself. <laughs> You know, and, and she did this for much longer than I did and many more dangerous places than, than I, I did. But, yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a sense that if, if you're not doing it, then who else will? I think there's also, for me, you know, and I think for her, 
you know, it's not about the thrill. It's not about the adrenaline rush. She was filled with fear. She hated being on the front lines. She hated being shot at. It was always, you know, in pursuit of, of this story. You know, she's competitive. She didn't want other people to get the scoop before she did. But I think what really drove her was was this attempt to tell stories that people weren't telling to give voice to the voiceless. And I think, I don't really like this term, but, you know, bear witness to the, you know, the individuals caught in these conflicts uh, that are so often forgotten. You know, it's so easy to look at stats or headlines or photos and so easy to keep these conflicts at arm's length. But I think her goal really was to, if she could in, you know, 800 words, 1500 words, get people to stop and care and think and empathize for people across the world. Did you find that there were other films about war correspondents or, you know, people who were in war zones who were not themselves combatants that were well done and maybe useful as references? I mean, the only thing I can even think of that got widespread attention, and I'm sure I'm forgetting others, but you you go way back to the 40s and they were doing something about Ernie Pyle. The story of G.I. Joe was at the time a very popular, I think, Oscar-recognized movie, but I can't think of too many other examples. Were there that, that you consulted? I was very lucky enough to to collaborate with Robert Richardson. You know, he's one of the most accomplished DPs out there and shot everything from Platoon to Born on the Fourth of July to Kill Bill, Aviator, Hugo. Oscar winner. It's unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, and, and but he actually started out shooting docks. He shot a dock in El Salvador, which caught the attention of Oliver Stone, and, and then they went and made Salvador. Yes. And, you know, he and I spent months sort of sending each other every film we could get our hands on and, and talking about them and analyzing them and, and, and looking at images of war photographers and, and sort of figuring out our visual aesthetic. You know, we both knew we wanted to shoot in this docu-style way, but, you know, we were very inspired by a lot of the films we saw. Battle of Algiers, mm-hmm. you know, the most sort of, sort of thematically comparable film is Killing Fields, yeah. obviously, you know, Hurt Locker. I mean, there's been, you know, a series of films, you know, a film that he and I actually ironically both rate as one of our favorite films of all time is a film called War Witch that, you know, a lot of people haven't seen. It's it's an unbelievably beautiful film made by a Canadian filmmaker. And just the, the aesthetic of that was something that we both were, were really moved by. So, yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time researching and studying how we wanted to shoot this film in an effort to make it as visceral, as authentic as possible and to really put you in her shoes and to make you feel what she felt, to make you feel like what it's like to be at war, to be in war, to be covering these stories. And to that same end, you guys shot in locations where she had been and with people that she covered, right, or that were part affected by the wars that she covered. So we shot all the war zones, which were Sri Lanka, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and uh, Syria, um, all in Jordan. And, you know, one of the things that was really important to me was to work with, with all non-actors as the background cast. And I, over the course of a couple of months, found refugees from all the various countries that were depicting to play those roles. And so when, for example, Rosman walks into a shelter in the besieged city of Homs, you know, the two women that she speaks to were, were really from homes, were really in a shelter similar to the one we depict, and they were telling their own real stories and shedding real tears. There's a scene afterwards in a hospital where a young man brings in a young boy who ends up dying uh, in the hospital table, and, you know, he was also from homes. His nephew was shot by a sniper 
on his shoulders at a protest and bled out in front of him. And so the just insane amount of emotion that he brought into that room was just almost unbearable, really. And I think your other scene for people who are listening to this having already seen the movie, even if they end up listening afterwards, the one in which the bodies are being dug up, there, there was another connection there, right? Yeah, there's a scene where Marie uncovers a mass grave in Iraq and... You know, the, the women there are real Iraqi women, again, reliving sort of trauma from the experiences that they had had there. You know, and, and that was really exciting for me to bring that documentary aesthetic into this, you know, narrative space and to create environments that felt as real as possible so that, you know, Bob Richardson and, and I, you know, we could move around these scenes in, in sort of a 360 way, almost as if we're shooting a verite doc. And you know, follow Rosamond as she's interviewing people and Jimmy Dornan as he's shooting photographs. And, you know, like my docs, there's, you know, I tried to create environments also where happy accidents or surprises can happen. And to me, that's, you know, what I love about making films is, is you know, obviously things are in, in this form are scripted, but allowing for, for things to, to happen that you might not predict. And at the end of this day, these women, you know, were so moved, they started doing this this prayer for the dead. And, you know, that wasn't scripted, that wasn't planned, but it was this very beautiful, poignant moment that, you know, crescendoed that scene. And your cameras were still capturing it, and you so you get a very authentic reaction from even Rosamond or yeah. others. Let's talk about Rosamond, because she is a British actress who's been around for a while, and people have maybe seen her in very different contexts. She's, we, you know, we're saying last time I saw you, it's sort of interesting, everything from a Bond girl to Gone Girl and many things in between. But I think she said she's been a guest on this podcast back in Toronto after you guys premiered. And I think it's her feeling as well as it's mine that she's never really had a part as meaty and complex as this. And I know she's, it was very challenging and thrilling to her to get that opportunity, but you both had to really put a lot of trust in each other. For her, she's working with a first-time narrative filmmaker. For you, your first narrative film, which there's no guarantee ever that there's a second, is really going to ride on the back of whoever plays, obviously, Marie Colvin. So how did you guys come together? She came to a screening of, of my last documentary, City of Ghosts, and we just got along really well, and we had breakfast the next morning, and sort of the passion and vigor with which she sort of wanted this role and I think understood this role almost felt like it was, you know, Marie Colvin going after an article. I mean, she, yeah, she just really understood who Marie was. And we actually wrote each other these essays of who is Marie Colvin after that breakfast that we had. And her description of her was so spot on that it's so clear that this was my Marie. And, and also, you know, I really wanted someone who would, you know, treat me as an equal, having never done this before. Obviously, I've made films, but I never made a narrative yeah. film. But also someone who's going to, you know, get in the trenches and get their hands dirty. And she did that in spades. And so it was really exciting to be able to go on this journey of exploration, of, of research with her. You know, a big part of that process was gaining the trust of her friends and colleagues, many of whom were, were apprehensive. Oh, of the real Marie's yeah. friends and colleagues, many of whom were apprehensive about the film, as I probably would have been. You know, is this some Hollywoodization of our friend? Her death was still quite raw. And so, like a journalist, you know, we were going from sort of source to source, gaining their trust, getting information, and, and a lot of, you know, that research helps, you know, create the different shades and fabrics of who this, you know, beautifully courageous 
what flawed and complex person was. And, you know, it was really exciting to have a partner. And, and I think, you know, a big part of the documentaries that I make are based on trust, trust and rapport that you, you build over time with your subjects. And I found that that's, you know, the skill is quite transferable in working with, with actors and, you know, especially with Rosman, that, you know, we, we really trusted each other in a way that, you know, we could both make mistakes. We could both, you know, feel free to, to really challenge each other and push each other where we could improvise and, and surprise each other. And there's countless examples of, of that happening throughout the film. So you like working with actors or so far this specific actor is the plan to now continue to focus primarily or exclusively on narrative or do you think you'll do more docs? What's what's next for you? Both. You know, I feel extremely lucky to be able to tell stories, to be able to make films. I'm doing a doc series right now and I'm reading scripts and yeah, I think the world is so malleable right now. You know, I've tried to make my docs feel like narratives and I tried in some sense to make this narrative feel like a doc. But I also, you know, I also believe very deeply that this this world is so divided is so fractured and that film has the ability to whether it's a documentary or a narrative to bring people together to provoke conversation at least to get people to stop and think for a little bit and that's what I've tried to do with this film and and I hope to you know continue to do Matt Heineman thank you for joining us thanks for having me and now for my interview with Steve McQueen All right, Steve, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to see you again. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely, and and congrats again on this, your fourth feature. We'll work our way chronologically here, if that's all right. We always just begin with some basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in London, England, in 1969. My father was a builder, and my mother worked in a maternity hospital and in London. both had immigrated to England? Yes. Yes. From from what part of the world? Grenada and Trinidad in the West Indies. And how did you end up with the name Steve McQueen? I'm sure you get this probably every day, but I'm curious. Well, my last name is McQueen, and I was born in 1969. I imagine it was the, the year of bullets. And I, my mother told me that the, the nurses kept on calling me Steve. And I said, Steve? Steve's name was Steve? Steve? Said, oh, I'm Steve. Oh, yeah, Steve. It's not a nice name. And rank. that was it. That yes. was the end of that. <laughs> so what sort of a childhood would you say you had? Was it happy? Was it... Difficult. I know that one thing you told my colleague Stephen Galloway recently was that you always felt you were underestimated. So I just wondered who was underestimating you and why do well, you think that was? from the top. So yeah. As a child, it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, it was a wonderful childhood, a fantastic childhood, and uh, at a great time. And, uh, you know, again, we, 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 at a certain point, we, we lived in the inner, inner cities. And then my mother moved us to Ealing, which was fantastic. You know, that's when we lived in the suburbs. So we, we came out of the inner cities area, and then, you know, we had all these parks and stuff and places to sort of play and to places to daydream. And, you know, like I sort of left my, you know, my mother's house and my father's house in the morning, came back in the afternoon, in, in the evening rather, and it was wonderful. So that was a great childhood. The situation, because I had dyslexia, and, you know, again, it's one of those things where at that early stage in, in my life, one didn't know, and people weren't, you know, depending on what kind of background you come from and what sort of, and how they pay attention to it. And I think through who... I was, people just sort of, sort of put me to one side rather than to sort of find out what it was and help in, in, in a real way. So obviously at a certain point, I thought of myself as sort of not being bright, but then I realized at a certain point just through myself that I was. So it's one of those things where, you know, that was a situation of, you know, there was the black children in, in London at a certain point. There was actually a paper 
going around in the 70s about the West Indian children. I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, about sort of them being sort of um, intellectually sort of not having the capacity as other children. This was this is a true. This is, this is actually wow. quite true. Yes, it was true, and so therefore, you know, what you want has to have to fight all kinds of nonsense and stereotypes, and as part of that, I suppose, being thrown on the scrap heap as such. But yeah. uh, you know, through your sort of uh, you know journey and in, in your endeavour, you realise what the situation is, and you sort of uh, overcome it. Well, it seems like the area at which you excelled and certainly felt most passionate about as a kid would have been art. How did that first enter your life? Well, art, geography, and history, those are the three things. As a child, I could always draw. And through that sort of came a lot of other things, like, you know, art and history and geography, of course, go together. So that was just a a good, I mean, that was a great way of getting into those subjects. Were you thinking in terms of art as a potential career path, or was it purely a passion? If anyone thinks of art as a career, then they're nuts. <laughs> no, this no, not at all. I just it was something that I wanted to sort of uh, investigate and you know and, and experiment and not knowing where it would lead me to and you know it just it was just a pure sort of curiosity. In terms of visual arts or screen arts, I guess I remember when I first interviewed you in 2011, tied to shame, you were talking about the fact that there was great TV when you were growing up in England, and so that was your original kind of interest. But then. I think there was a girlfriend that came along that made film uh, more appealing to you as well? Yeah, I mean, growing up in England and the BBC and ITV as well, there was, there was great television. I mean, before, you know, the recent situation, which is not so great anymore. And great radio too, and great educational programs, great documentaries. So it was very much about, and, as well, and those, those documentaries could sometimes be sort of overly intellectual or overly sort of educational but which was great because you know if you, if you didn't know what it was exactly what exactly was about you always held on and that was great but now, anyway and then i had when i went to um art school i had a girlfriend who was very much into cinema and she took me to these lot of repository cinemas in london where you know i saw all the classics on 35 millimeter i was obsessed you know i thought you know cinemas were about the back row and kissing and all that kind of <laughs> stuff and you know i would never have thought of going to cinema on my own it was just like it's like my oh, you're a sad person <laughs> it was always about with your friends and i mean you know right. but then i just got into this this whole idea of cinema and seeing the world you know being projected in, in front of me and it was just it was just i was hooked because she was swiss you were saying i think she therefore was open to maybe different kinds of cinema than no, you would have been she, she could have been from taiwan she could have been from russia she could have been from yeah. sort of botswana it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have matter where, where she came from yeah it's just that she had a knowledge of cinema and yeah. that was it it could have been anywhere so you mentioned going off to art school how did your family feel about you going down that road didn't really matter. I mean, again, I think they were just, you know, again, my mother was was much more sort of supportive in the way of, of, of the arts. And my father was more like, get a trade. Just because, you know, working class person, you know, you, you, want, you want your son or your daughter to do well. And, or, you know, it's again, it's like, you know, a certain kind of families want their children to be doctors and lawyers. It's like, you know, they, they want to be safe. They, you know, again, yeah. they, you know, that's all. And so you started off, I believe, Chelsea College of Arts. Then you go over to Goldsmiths, which is part of the University of London. What was the NYU chapter here? It was I know it was short. How did that factor in NYU Tisch? Because I wanted to go to film school. When I came out of art school, I wanted to go to film school. So it was, I was like, always like film and art and film. It was always like that. I got into NYU, and it just wasn't for me, really. Had you spent time in America before that? Yes, the majority of my family are from the States, uh, New York and 
a lot of them in Florida now. So yes, I've been coming to America since seventy seven since the blackout and Elvis died. <laughs> seventy seven, yeah. So when you walked hot away summer. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yes. I think summer of Sam as well, maybe. There was some Possibly, yes. Yeah. When you walked away from film school between that moment and a moment in 1999 when, at the age of 30, you won a very prestigious prize that I'm going to ask you about in a moment, what were those years comprised of? What was going on in your life in those years in between leaving NYU and the Turner Prize? Well, when I left for America, I had a situation where there was a chap called Richard Curtis. He was the head of film at the British Council. He said, if you ever come back, if you want some money to make something, because he assessed my university to the degree, as well as everyone else is, uh, as an overseer. And he basically took to me and he said, look, if you ever come back to the UK, you know, look me up and I would love to sort of help you give us some money. So I, that's what I did immediately after I came back from To give you money to... To basically to make an artwork, a film. Yeah. And, such. and he did. He gave me £5,000 which was a bit of money in those days. <laughs> Not now, of course, but uh, to make a, I helped to make a film called Five Easy Pieces, which, which I made. And then that sort of got the attention of certain people, as well as my graduation film. And then I got into, you know, sort of, I got a gallery and I showed the two films at the, at the ICA, the Institution of Contemporary Art in London, and things just took off from there. And was it always art with a film component, or were there other forms of art as well, sculpture and different There was three-dimensional objects, yes, as well. Mm-hmm. And so what were the works, if, if somebody were to go and do a Steve McQueen art retrospective from that period, what were the ones that probably most caught the eye of, I believe it's under the auspices of London's Tate Gallery, but this Turner Prize, which is $60,000 award for the best British artist under the age of 50, which you ended up winning at the age of 30 in 1999. Which works most impressed them? You have to ask them that question, yeah. but I imagine, again, I mean, I think the Court People's Eye was a film called Deadpan. Mm-hmm. It was basically a sort of taking a scene from Steamboat Bill Jr. Mm-hmm. from 1928, which was a Buster Keaton picture, which he took actually from the first Mickey Mouse picture called Steamboat yeah. Willie. Basically what it is is an image of a, of myself standing in front of this sort of bar house and the facade sort of collapsing and me being sort of uh, miraculously sort of surviving this through the, a, a window, which it falls through me. And it's four minutes of screen time, but I'm sure a lot of... A lot of work goes into making something like that, right? Yes, yeah, artwork. It's not. Yeah. It's not a short narrative. It's an artwork. Yeah. So I, I sort of hate the description of short because it's not. A, it's not right, a short. Right, I mean, right. it is an artwork, and it's like it's not about time. It's about what happens within that time. And there were others in that vein, right? Bear, I know, is one that a lot of people talk about from four years even before Deadpan. Can you share a little bit about that one? Yeah, it's, it's myself and, and another participant, and we're wrestling all kinds of things going on. You know, and then the. The last that I'd ask you about is one that came a year after Deadpan, 1998, Drumroll. I guess each one of these is completely different. That's the idea. But this one is pretty inventive, what you did there with that. Yes. I put two cameras, uh, three cameras, in fact, an oil drum, one on each axis of the oil drum and one sort of sort of on the, on the side of it and, and tilted it on its side and rolled it around Fifth Avenue, basically. Yeah. And so at that period of your life, how do you make money doing that sort of thing? It's... Obviously, not everything's about money. No, so. of course, but you have to eat. <laughs> well, no, not everything's about money. I don't. I think listen. I don't. I'm not interested in in that sort of. You know, if if that's the limitation put on me, then I. You know, again, I think it, it, you wouldn't half, half things I wouldn't do. That's not my sort of aim. No, I totally. Mm. I, I hear you and I respect that, but you have to eat, right? 
Yeah, but how do you make money? I mean, it's always kind of an odd question. I mean, maybe I'm very English and, you know, very bashful about talking about money in, 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 in those terms, but that wasn't my aim. And, and I don't, you know, guess what? I'm, I'm here sitting on the Yes, no, I and mean... And I'm it. sort of, obviously, I've, I've, I've eaten. Yes. And I'm, I'm clothed, so <laughs> there you go. Okay, so one other thing that just obviously was a turning point after those earlier works it seems like you were not particularly interested in narrative at all in those earlier years. I mean, there's all forms of narrative. I think, you know, again, there's, there's, there's a classical story. There's all kind of narrative. Everything's a narrative. Yeah. You know, everything I lo- you look at is a narrative. And uh, anything, uh, you know, even you know Van Gogh sort of painting Sunflower, there's narrative in there. Right. I mean, again, yes, it's, it's much more sort of obviously less classical, less than once upon a time in the end. But you could always find a story within an image, always. What happened, I guess, in 2007 that led to you being able to make a feature film for the first time? Was that even something you had the desire of doing, or how did that come about? No. I, I mean, of course, I went to NYU, and I was interested in film, but, I, you know, again, it, for me, the subject has to demand the form of it wants to be, and the subject that came into my head at that time was about was Bobby Sands, this hunger striker, and the form that it was asking for through sort of, you know, thinking about it was narrative was story so I thought okay well this has to be a narrative feature film and the financing though that made it possible that came from UK Channel 4 but was it on the basis of those earlier works that we've just talked about or was you know most- yes I was very fortunate to sort of have a relationship with Marion Goodman uh, and Marion Goodman Gallery yeah. and through that those works were sold to institutions uh, Museum of Modern Art, for example, the Tate, and you know, and and uh, other collections and whatnot. So that's that's how I sort of clothed in N eight. Yes. <laughs> so through that sort of having that sort of reputation, of course, people sort of were interested in in, in what I want to do. And I met this woman called Jan Young Husband. But interestingly, Jan was not. It wasn't from Film Four. It was from the Arts Division of Channel Four. Okay. And she gave me nine hundred thousand pounds to make Hunger, my first feature film. And there was some money from Northern Ireland Film and a little bit from Welsh Association. And it sounds like Bobby Sands had kind of captured your imagination since you were very young. What yes. was it about him that you think did that? Look, I thought to myself, this is the first one, and it could be the last one, mate. So whatever. I didn't, again, you, you go into it a very kamikaze style. Whatever. What will be, will be. Right. And I thought, okay, this is the film I want to make. So if, if the, I don't get a chance to make another film, this is it. And it was about, I think, that attitude of his in some ways of... Um, using his, his his life as a kind of a weapon in order to sort of make change. Whatever you think about that, you know, you know there are pros and cons of, of, about how he did and what he did and why or who, what he did it for. But for me, I was just interested in, in that part, part of British history, yeah. which was, in fact, swept beneath the carpet for a long period of time. By the time Shame came along, you had reached the conclusion that you shared in, in that earlier interview that I had with you that, you that I referenced, where you said, quote, actors are, for me, the most important thing in a movie. Close quote. And you had at some point, uh, maybe maybe you can specify when, but attended acting workshops, not because you had any desire to be an actor, but to understand how actors work and how to work with actors. So flashing backwards now to when you were having to work with actors, I guess, Mm -hmm. for the first time on Hunger, what was that casting process like and how did it lead you to one Michael Fassbender? Well, it was a bit naive as well within the process, because I think when, when I met for example, when I met Michael for the first time, I thought he was a bit cocky. I thought, it was this guy? <laughs> Not knowing, you know, again, that, you know, actors, you know, how much you put into a, to, to an audition, how much you leave out. You, you know, you've been rejected, you know, a bunch of times. And, you know, you, you, you know, again, it's very, all these things I had, I wasn't so aware of at that, you know, at that point. Yeah. 
which I should have been, of course. But it was through that process. And Michael came back the next day because I said, no. I said, okay, well, I'll put him back and see him again. The next day I saw him and I thought, oh, the guy's got something. Yeah. You learn. You, you learn through your, your mistakes most of the time. But then again, I, I'm very, how can I say this? Uh, for me, actors, and to collaborate with them is one of the, the biggest joys of, of my life, really. Because to sort of, to, to inspire and to be inspired is a huge thing to sort of, you know, what I want from an actor is to sort of, you know, get them to be at a certain point is to be a sphere where whatever they do, you know, it's like a sphere. It rolls this way, it rolls that way. It's perfect. Whatever they do is right. And my job is to hopefully help them to get to that point and then get out of the bloody way <laughs> and just say action and cut. So on that first feature length film, you told me, I believe that it was 24 day shoot, $2 million in, in US currency budget. Then it would have been much less. It would have, it was less at that time. No, because it, are you doing the conversion now or then? I'm, uh, I'm talking about it, money now, look, see? Yeah, well, it's, it's I all- I didn't want to talk about it before, but now I'm talking it's about It's all part of, the, part of the process. So you're saying less than $2 million. Did you enjoy that first experience making a film, or did you feel pressure? You did. It was what I was supposed to be be doing. I loved it. It was like from day one. I never had been on a movie set before in my life, before I stepped on my own, never. And that was because I didn't want to learn anyone's habits. I wanted to sort of, you know, find it myself. So the first day I was on set was the first day I was ever on a film set. Amazing. Obviously, that was the beginning of what became a very close and running collaboration with Fastbender. Can you pinpoint what clicked with you two? Why did you hit it off? I think we just enjoyed each other's company and we trusted each other. I think when you've got an actor who trusts you, or he or she sort of has that sort of, they feel safe and the environment you make I mean, I think it also it starts with the catering. It starts with electricians. <laughs> no, it really does. Yeah. It starts because you know, actors are very sensitive people. They know when things are up. They walk into a room and they can feel the energy. And if they're in a, in a place where it's, they feel that it's safe, then they'll go for it. And I think that's what I try to do, make that environment where they feel that they could do anything they want to do and, and, and fall on their face and get up again and try it again. Try things out. It's a, it's, it's a safe space to, to experiment. So how does that actually manifest itself? If you see something that you would like different on uh, that an actor is doing, you rather than speaking to them in front of everybody, you kind of go off with them privately? Or how does that work, actually? No, I think but if you're not doing it by that stage, you're not, you're not doing a good job. Yeah. No, before they get onto Brilliant. before they get onto the set, they you have to have a certain situation where they're you know they're doing it wrong then, but you're not doing a job properly. Hunger introduced us to something that I believe is a theme of your work or a reflex that you have, which is to to use unusually long takes. Is that a fair statement? Like I think that each of your films has quite long takes throughout them, right? Well, they're not there for fashion. No, of course. No, but, but I mean, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you were extraordinarily long. No, I love, <laughs> no, no. But look, it, it's there to sort of, it's you know, again, you know, if there is a, a long take, it's, it's there for, for a purpose and for a reason. You want it to be, it's not there for show. It's right. there for practical reasons Yeah. in order to sort of advance the narrative. It's all about what the story wants. So if there is that, great. It's not I a mean, conscious like, No, no, well, yeah. just, just like there was a two-shot. I mean, you know, is that, is that unusual? I don't know. I don't know. Look, it, it's all about how it advances the narrative. It's right. very, very important. That's all I'm after. You know, maybe next short film there isn't. Maybe there is. It, it's how it advances the story. So, right. it, yeah. The rollout of that film, I wonder if you can talk about it, was certainly a big thing for cinephiles at film festivals. It played Cannes, Telluride, Toronto, New York, and many of the other big ones. And so for people in in the business or real cinephiles, I think it really put you on their map. But how about the theatrical release? Was it something that you were pleased with? 
I think there was some mistakes made, especially in the United States, I'll be honest with you. I don't think they knew what they had. Yeah. So therefore, it wasn't promoted very well. Right. And then the people saw it. So what the hell? I mean, look, I'll be, I'm going to be frank with you. When we were in Cannes, you know, there was a situation where certain people who were on the jury said to me, well, the reason why it wasn't on competition because they didn't want it to be the second film, which, uh, you know, had an IRA theme to sort of, you know, be a possible winner. Because the year before was when it shook the barley. So, you know, there's all things going on. And it was just one of those things where, you know, you learn how things work out. Yeah, yeah. So it would be another three years before we saw your next film, Shame. Did you feel a bounce out of hunger in terms of suddenly the industry was clamoring to work with you? Or how did it affect your life? Because it sounds like you just do what you feel like doing in, in the best sense. But... Did shame come about because somebody came to you and said, we think this would be a good idea, or was you coming? No. Yeah. No, I had a conversation with myself and uh, Amy Morgan, the co-writer of Shame, and you know, she wanted to meet me, and we had a tea, which turned into a lunch, which, which turned into a dinner. <laughs> so we, we basically got on like a house on fire, and we just started to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. There was no real agenda other than the fact that she was an admirer of, of hunger. And then we got onto the subject of sexual addiction. How and does that, that come it. up? Through just being honest and, yeah. and, and, and talking about who we are as human beings and, and so forth. There was a beautiful conversation because I never met I never met Abby before in my life and we you know, it happens sometimes where you get have a you, you strike up a friendship yeah. just like that. And and that's how we started to sort of uh, think about a film about sexual addiction. And I know you you've said it's it's a subject that certainly just you know, whatever that's seven years ago, but even then it was less talked about. Some people didn't acknowledge that it was even real was part of the motivation to change that no i mean i, I thought it's a, it's a great story yeah i love the idea i was just thinking i said this is an addiction where someone needs i mean needs other people to sort of gratify that addiction of course you don't only need another person but mm -hmm. often more than often you need another person to satisfy that, that that addiction i love the idea of that and obviously obviously sex and cinema was kind of interesting to me too in some way of expressing that and, you know, again, it, 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 you know, it's the film that sort of, it's, it's almost like a dog whistle that went off in the cinema because a lot of people was like, you know, they, they sort of saw something on the, on the screen which right. never gets really spoken about, but which is very, very, it's the elephant in the room, yeah. very, very much, but very present. Was there ever any doubt that Fassbender would be in your next movie? We got on like a house on fire and, and that was it, yeah. Well, so he's playing the central protagonist, the sex addict who, Brandon, yes. yeah, who struggles to mm -hmm. connect or communicate outside of his sexual encounters and is unable to really sure. have sex with anyone he genuinely likes, just in case somebody hasn't seen it yet. I want to give that context. But shot in 25 days, in some ways it felt like maybe a little bit, if even now feels a little different from the other films that you've done. And I'm trying to pinpoint why. Were you welcoming of improvisation a little bit more on that one than you are in others or not really? All of my films are improvisation. That's, you have that's how good I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, all of them have improvisation. Yeah. And and the things that you think are improvised are actually written. I so, for example, this, this scene with Kerry Mulligan with Michael on the couch, that was improvised a little bit, but basically that was following script. It was the action. It was the sort of what actually happened on the couch, which was very much improvised. Things which the other person didn't know was happening or how that one person threw back on the other person. It's, it's sort of, again, you know, it's whatever works. I know that, Many times a filmmaker will say, I don't want to tell the audience, you know, if there's a question about what's happening on the screen, they mm -hmm. don't want to answer it. But in your own mind, maybe with the passage of a few years, maybe you're more willing to answer this one because it's always been on my mind. Was there 
incest between the two of them. They're nude in front of each other in a way that siblings are not usually. They both have these serious problems of different sorts in their life. Did you in your own mind establish this whole backstory for them about and whether or not there had been incest? Well, as Carrie Mulligan's character says, we're not bad people. We come from a bad place. Yeah. And that's my answer. That's your answer. Okay. The NC-17 rating that that film got, Mm -hmm. did you agree with that? And was it ultimately helpful or hurtful to the movie? NC-17. I mean, I didn't even know what it was. I thought it was a rap group. I had no (laughs) idea. Seriously, I had no idea what that meant. I mean, yeah. I mean, I suppose it did. I I didn't really care. You know, I was happy that it got into cinemas and that, that, that people could see it. I suppose I didn't really, you know, the, the numbers or anything like that didn't really bother me. And I now know it is the second largest grossing NC-17 movie ever. Wow. Yeah, hurrah. <laughs> um, I don't know. What's the first, Midnight Cowboy uh, or something? No, like the first is it's Showgirls. Oh. Go, hurrah. Well, <laughs> that that's way. a doubleheader for oh, you. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, yeah. So, look, I just wanted to tell a modern contemporary story. Yeah. And sex is a part of that. So, you know, let the chips fall where they may. I don't want to walk in any room blindfolded. And I'm an adult. And again, this is what happens. I mean, it wasn't pornography. No. It was telling a story about sexual addiction. So, you know, no, whatever amazing. works to numb each people out. I mean, it's, it, we're human beings. And I think, you know, it's about... Uh, Artists are about to push those boundaries. Artists are about telling stories. That's what it's about. Otherwise, we might as well just sort of not do anything. Why bother? Right. Well, that one, I just, the image, there are certain images that I'll never forget. Just the, you know, Fassbender winding up with whatever, I don't know if you'd call it a dungeon or, you know, where, where that one where. The threesome. The threesome. Yeah. Then her singing New York, New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a very powerful movie. But mm-hmm. 12 Years a Slave, I believe, would not have existed, at least as a Steve McQueen film, if not for your wife? Yes, he found the book. She said to me, why don't you look for true stories? Like, oh, yeah, of course. And then we both looked and she found she found this book called 12 Years a Slave. Why do you think it resonated with you and enough to want to make it your next film? Because it had all the elements that I was thinking about. I had the, a loose idea on paper and it basically matched all of them and transcended it. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of Solomon Northam before. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of 12 Years a Slave before. I mean, I live in Amsterdam and it's like, you know, you you can't, you know, you you think of sort of um, Anne Frank's diary. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a similarity in a way, a person sort of trapped in one way, shape, form, the other. And the fact that Solomon Northup wasn't a national sort of uh, hero in America for me was just, you know, I couldn't believe it. In case somebody has not yet seen the film, I want to say this is the story of a black man from the North who was deceived and sold into slavery in the South in mid-19th century America. And then what happens after that? Who wrote the script for 12 Years a Slave? Is that a fair question? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I think things happen in the process of sort of um, making scripts. And there's a thing called the WGA. And on the WGA, you know, John Ridley wrote that script. We leave it, we'll leave it there. Uh, no, no, it's the, the, the WGA, you know, John Ridley Well, the Ridley reason I ask is that all of your other films, you are credited as, a, as either A or the writer. And my sense is that you are very involved every step of the way. So I just want, does that mean that there was a Steve McQueen version of the script that existed along the way? Look, I think, you know, the fact that I sort of came up with the idea, I found a script to get my wife. I think that says it all, really. Sure. I don't think I have to go any, 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 any deeper. Sure. Back with Fastbender again, working this time with Brad Pitt, also as a producer on a film with a bigger budget than either of the two prior. But for a lot of people, the person who 
the actor who stole the show was a then virtual unknown named Lupita Nyong'o, who went on to win the Best Supporting Actress Oscar and became a, a movie star through that movie. Where did you discover her and, and what convinced you that she was right for that part? I just thought she was absolutely amazing. It was a long, long search for that character. And it was similar to sort of looking for Scarlett O'Hara, uh, I suppose, yeah, in a way. Yeah. A similarity to it, because it was very difficult to get that, that character. And then all of a sudden, Francie Maisley, this amazing casting director, sort of sent me this, this, this tape. And there was actually two women she sent me tapes of, and then one of them was Lupita, and, and that was it. That was the, 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 you know, I showed my wife, showed my daughter, and that was it. That, yeah. was, that was the end, yeah. Was that shoot overall, I mean, I'm thinking about what Lupita's character alone endures in that movie. It's pretty brutal and emotionally very rough. You know, the whole storyline is, is devastating. So I wonder, though, for you guys, is it the kind of thing while you were making it that you are able to sort of turn the emotions on and off? Like, what happens when you say cut on 12 Years a Slave? Well, it's, it's not that simple. I think, you know, in any movie, it's not just that movie. It's, 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 it's not to break out the beers and, you know, <laughs> you know, you've got to be very sensitive to that, you know, to that environment and respectful and, you know, it's something. It's not sort of something I could actually be flippant about at all, far from it. It's very serious, yeah. yeah. Can you take me back to the Galaxy Theater in Telluride, Colorado on mm -hmm. the night of Friday, August 30th, 2013? I believe it was the first Anywhere screening of 12 Years a Slave. I was lucky enough to be one of the people there, but I wonder for you, did you go in with the expectation that people would respond the way they did to it? I didn't know what would happen. I was very excited, the, the fact of showing the picture. That was the first time. It was the first screening, I think. Yes, it was the first screening. I was very excited about that. And... It was, it was just, it was incredible, yeah. the response. It was incredible. I mean, it was just, you know, people in tears, people hugging each other who didn't know each other, the whole thing. It was, it was the power of cinema and what cinema could actually do. And I was very sort of humbled by it, really. After the screening ended, there was a Q&A that featured you, I think all the Plan B folks, including Brad Pitt, of course, who's also in the cast, the rest of the cast. Do you remember who the moderator was? I didn't know. I can't remember. Apparently, it was Barry Jenkins. Yeah. But I couldn't, you know, it was just everything's a fog. I mean, it was him, apparently. Yeah, well, because yeah. Barry's been a volunteer at yes. Telluride for years. And and the other crazy thing is that from that Q&A came Moonlight, because the Plan B guys said to Barry, what have you been doing mm -hmm. since your prior film years earlier? And that was, he says, the beginning of Moonlight. Yeah, yeah. Did you realize that? No, but Plan B did tell me 12 Years a Slave had a huge impact on getting Moonlight and Selma made because they wouldn't have got made otherwise. Yeah. Because the, the fact, fact of the matter was, but that, at that point in time, people close to me was just saying, you know, you know you're, you're an impossible movie. And the fact of the matter is that they were saying that, you know, this film will do nothing internationally and that, you know, it might make a little bit of money in the United States. But, of course, that, that was all sort of turned on its head with this movie. So I think that's when Hollywood realized, okay, well, understandable. We can make money out of working with uh, predominantly black characters. Well, and that's, that's what exactly what I wanted to ask you about next, because mm -hmm. for many years there was this kind of axiom in Hollywood, quote, black films don't travel, close quote, meaning they don't make money internationally. First, what do you make of the idea of the term black films? And second, why did 12 Years travel to the to the tune of almost $188 million worldwide, more than $131 million of which came from outside the U.S.? So the idea of black films, what does that mean? Is 12 Years a Slave a black film? And then also just why did that one defy the, the quote-unquote rule? 
I don't care what people call it a black film. I don't, I don't, I don't mind. It doesn't bother me. I just hope it's a good film. That's all. Why? I, I don't know. I mean, I think people, people just want good stories, I think. And, you know, again, I think that's, that, that's, that's the beginning and the end of it, really. Yeah. Take me through Oscar night. This was after the usual kind of circuit has its run of several months of, you know, the film being recognized in all different places and festivals and award shows. You finally get to the Dolby Theater. And I think I remember seeing you that night and you said something like that you were very reconciled with the idea that Quaron was going to be recognized with Best Director. In your own mind, you thought that was, I think, a done deal for that night. What did you think the chances were for Best Picture? I had to say that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Look, I, I, I thought there was a possibility of winning it, you know, everything. If it was director, if it was uh, Best Supporting Actor, Lead Actor, and, and, and Film, and, and all the rest of it. So I, I thought there was a possibility, and that was, you know, again, it was, we won in all those categories because we made that film and it was put in cinemas and people responded to it. I mean, I only found out recently that the film was meant to have a slow release, was having a slow release, and people were going to cinemas and there was actual physical situations happening with the cinema management, management saying, where's 12 Years a Slave? Why isn't 12 Years a Slave out? Because the people who released this picture didn't think it would do that well themselves. Who had then, also done shame, right? And then that's when they rushed to release it in three weeks. So basically we lost a lot of revenue in that first three weeks. That's what happened. I've only learned, I've only learned this recently, that the NAP, there was a lot of arguments in, in cinema in cinema around the country, people are demanding to have as a slave because they didn't think it would do that well to do slow release and they had to rush it out in, in three weeks. So wasn't we, lost, there also, we lost a lot of money doing that. But wasn't there also something, if I remember, something bizarre internationally where certain countries were putting Brad Pitt on the poster as if he was the main character in the movie? Do you remember that? What do I say about that? Really? I don't know, but I mean, that can't have been with, with your knowledge or consent. No. Yeah. Post 12 Years a Slave and the Oscars, you know, were you inundated with with ideas of, hey, we'd like to work with you on this or that? Or what changed as a result of the film and the Oscars? Did you feel pressure or uncertainty about how to follow it up? Or were you OK with that moment? I think because I was working immediately afterwards, I didn't have a lot of time to think about that. So that HBO pilot, which didn't get made in the end. So I was just busy with things. And I had that art projects and museum shows. When in doubt, go back to the art. Why are you doing it? All that noise is just, it's very nice in a way, but then again, it's just sort of, it doesn't, it's not, it's not what I'm used to and it's not what I'm about. So yeah. it's very easy to sort of negate that yeah. and just focus on, on, on work. One thing that happened the year or the, the award season after 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture was what has come to be known as Oscar So White. And in fact, it was the two seasons after mm -hmm. 12 Years a Slave where none of the 20 acting nominees were people of color. And while Selma was nominated for Best Picture the year after 12 Years a Slave, some were quite upset that its director, Ava DuVernay, was not nominated. Do you believe that the same organization that awarded Best Picture to 12 Years a Slave, and I believe that same year elected a board that elected a black woman as its president, in fact, harbored underlying racism that kind of manifested itself through what we call Oscar So White? Or was there some other explanation for how that could have happened? I don't know. Yeah. Did it bother you in the moment, though? I mean, obviously, the optics are terrible, but it's diagnosing the root of the problem, I think, is 
is interesting. It's about opportunity. And I think basically it's about giving people the opportunity to tell stories. And so, you know, the whole idea of Oscar's great, fantastic genius, all that business. But I care about people making films and telling stories. Of course. Yeah. I think that's the main thing. I, you know, this, this award business, they are great and fantastic and all. But, you know, it's about evidence. And I, I'm, I much more want to focus on actually getting people to make the stories that they want to make that include sort of Latino sort of filmmakers and directors and African-American uh, women, the people who are not represented on, on the screen. It's very important. So that, you know, Oscar's great, but this is the main right. focus, getting people opportunities to actually make the films in the first place. Well, and the kind of diverse cast that you've just described is epitomized by Widows, which is what I want to now come to because this is your new forthcoming film that has been rolling out since the Toronto Film Festival. You and Gillian Flynn are both listed as screenwriters on this. It's an adaptation of Linda LaPlante's novel of the same name. How did it first cross your radar and what appealed to you about it? It's not what many people expected to be the genre or you know, in many ways, just this unexpected follow-up to a Best Picture Oscar. Well, firstly, as far as diversity is concerned in my picture, it's you just look out the window, look out just right here. That's the world. Yeah. So I'm not flexing any muscles. I'm not trying to sort of bend any, any rules here. I'm just sort of reflecting the people who are in our everyday. So that's one thing I want to talk about as far as that, that is concerned. Um, just want to represent the reality of the world that we live in, and that's it. The idea of Widows came about when I was 13 years old. Well, the, the, the scene of it, rather. I was 13 years old, I was watching TV, and then this series came on called Widows, and I was just sort of struck by these women and the fact that they were sort of being sort of looked upon as uh, not being capable and being looked upon and judged on their parents, similar to how I was being sort of judged as a 13-year-old black child in London in the 80s. And the 80s was a very sort of uh, heavy time in London at that time, as far as race relations are concerned. And to see these women sort of surf and navigate and put on its head those stereotypes put on them and achieve their goal was amazing. It was wonderful to me to, to look at. And I had it, I just put it in my pocket for 35 years. I, mean, I was, it just <laughs> always stayed with me. Yeah. And of course, today, um, and, and, and I was able to sort of remake that picture, but it's, it's kind of bittersweet because in 35 years, not much has changed. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're making a movie about these four women who sort of accomplished this sort of heist in, in, in these unfortunate circumstances. And you remake it 35 years later, and it's, you know, it's kind of not much has changed. Widows, in terms of its budget, and I hate to come back to money one, one last time, but sure. it's considerably bigger than any of the prior three, $40 million budget I read, but it's also considerably more artful, I would say, than most movies that are made at that budget. And so for that reason, I want to pose to you a question that I was actually just asking around earlier today. Is there, does anybody have something that they are dying to know from, from you? Cause I, they, you know, I'd be speaking with you and of all people, the actor Alessandro Nivola weighed in and said, he wanted to ask you, What's the difference between an art film, quote unquote, and an art house film, quote unquote? Who wants to ask This that? is the actor Alessandro Nivola. He's a oh. theater and film actor. He's a very good actor, and yes. he happened to respond to this. And I actually think it's an interesting question because those two things are not synonymous, I don't think, right? An art film and an art house film. For me, it's about good or bad movies. That's, right. that's about it. I don't really, yeah. that's your job <laughs> to, to distinguish what's what. I don't really right. care. I mean, you know, I could look at, you know, I could look at sort of you know, E.T. And I, and I could look at sort of a, a true phone movie. Right. It doesn't mean anything to me. But a $40 million budget, does it 
for a director put any more pressure on you to make different decisions at any stage of the process? Not for me. No? no not for me, no. Viola Davis, who is so wonderful as the star of your film here, one of the stars, was surprised that you cast her as the lead because she said, quote, if you're here to play a lead character in a movie, there's got to be a look and you've got to be pretty. You've got to sort of assimilate and have a more crossover appeal. Straight hair, a more European look. But Steve said, I want you to wear your real hair because that woman exists. She never gets introduced in the American cinema. It's time we introduced her, close quote. There aren't many heist movies with a woman at the center of them, and far fewer even with a black woman at the center of them. Was that role always, I, I guess, obviously, the title of the movie is Widows, but when it was on TV, was that character a black woman? Well, you know it. She wasn't. No, I didn't. I <laughs> no, swear to God, I didn't. No, okay, okay. Oh, well, you're so well researched. I thought you would know that. <laughs> she wasn't. She was a white woman. But within the group, there was a black woman, an actress called Ava Motley, mm-hmm. who was one of the group, one of the four women. But, but no, the main uh, actress was a white woman. But then again, all of my women are different to the women that were in, in, the, in the original yeah. Widows. And you can't do better than Viola Davis, so that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think it's, it's one of those things where she's such an amazing actress, and you just want to sort of give the film this depth, and she, she, she brings that with her. This is the first Steve McQueen film without Michael Fassbender. Was yes. that ever possibly going to be different? I mean, I think it was scheduling and, and, and whatnot, so it was, yeah. it, was, it was unfortunate, but not really. Oops, sorry, sorry, Michael. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things. When is the film meant to take place? Is there a specific year? Or, you know, part of the reason I'm asking is, mm-hmm. is it in Trump's America? Oh, for sure. For sure? Absolutely. And the fact that it's in Trump's America and set in Chicago— Mm-hmm. Why is it important to you to set this against the backdrop of present-day Chicago? Well, I think it could be Trump. It could be. It's just indicative of how the world is right now, isn't it? It doesn't matter if it's Trump or if it's sort of Brexit or, or whatever, or sort of you know, or else you know, elsewhere in Europe. It's a time in the world where there seems to be a sort of narrowing of a, of, of opinions, or a very, you know, division happening. And I just wanted to look at the world that we all live in, that this sort of uh, environment we have to sort of, you know, wade our way through to sort of get to our, our destination. And, yep. and, it, and it's, not a, it's not a pleasant one. You know, it's, 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 it's corruption. There's false profits. There's, you know, backroom dealings. And it, there's a trickle-down effect because it affects us in our, in our every day. And again, it seems that politicians, you know, they, they, they should be for the people, but they're, they're often for themselves, unfortunately. Yeah. And I just want to sort of, put this fictional story written by Linda Plot and, and place it within that our current present times. Yeah. So therefore, to re- relocate this narrative from the early 80s uh, London into the present day Chicago was looking at Chicago in a microscope, but turning it around and it being a telescope, reflecting, you know, how we live in, the, in, in every day, wherever we are in the world. Right. It definitely gives us a lot to think about. It also is a full sensory experience in that from almost the very beginning, there are incredible action sequences in this film. And I don't Mm. think that we'd ever, I don't believe you'd ever overseen anything like that in any of these earlier films. No. no. So was there a learning curve with that or were you into it right away and was was it fun? I was into it right away. Yeah. I mean, but again, yes, but it's it's just that you learn so much and you have to learn very quickly and also challenge the sort of, to stunt people, special yeah. effects people, it's great because, oh, can you do this? Oh, really? oh not thought of doing that. So there's certain things that happen in it which I thought, okay, if it happens in that context, it looks totally twice the size it would appear to be yeah. because it's happening 
well, I don't want to give the game no, away. No, but it's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's it, that's it. So the limitations of, of the environment and things happening within limitations actually make it look twice as big. Yeah. And the things like that, it was, just, it was very interesting and they were very intrigued and again, it was just wonderful dialogue and they, they're, they were just amazing, amazing, amazing artists. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, really, um, and to see them be excited by things that, to try things out differently right. was, was wonderful too. Well, and I was, I, I just have to share with you, I think you've probably witnessed this yourself at screenings of this movie, but mm. seated around me were people of all ages and backgrounds and mm. everything. And for both action sequences where things suddenly happened mm. or, and also story twists, there were probably three or four times where somebody, there's an audible like, oh shit, or you know, something. Mm, so yeah. you, you're definitely landing Thoughts. the punches. I remember that you've said in re regard to earlier films that you you have not made the comparison, but I'm going to make the comparison that like Hitchcock and some other filmmakers, you don't shoot that much film. It's very kind of edited in your own mind, I think, ahead of time or, mm. or you know, minimal. Min you're not shooting tons and tons of unnecessary film, right? No, I don't because, again, I, I, I sort of respect the medium that so much because in some ways, I mean, when I was a kid, young person rather than I had this Super 8 camera in my hand, it cost so much to process. So I had to be kind of really sure what I wanted to do yeah. or what I wanted to shoot rather. So therefore, you have to be in the ballpark. You don't have to be accurate just in the ball. I mean, it's like golf. Yeah. How many swings do you have on it? <laughs> so, you know, as a director, for me, it's a job of sort of having uh, an idea of what I want to do before I get I get out there. I'm not nailing anything to the floor because there's wiggle room, there's movement in there. But you've got to be within the vicinity. And then you could be, you know, you, you're hoping for that sense of movement or sense of possibility within the limitations that you've put on yourself. And that's that's great. Yeah. It's like what I do is write the harmony and the melody. And within the harmony and melody, you could do what the hell you wanted to do. <laughs> or I could do it, but it's got to be within the harmony and the melody. Right. Is there anything in common thematically or otherwise that you can sort of step back and see as a thread running between all four of your feature films? Do you see anything that they all share in common? That's not my job. That's your job. No, but I mean... <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. No, um, no, but you... Yeah, I mean, people have said, and, and uh, the whole idea of... They said about a person who's imprisoned in one way or the other and they have to escape in some ways or they have to sort of they they struggled and they're, they're, it's about their journey or their path to sort of uh, to sort of find themselves within the the, the imprison they the, the prison they find themselves in yeah metaphorically or, or actual physically or, or, or whatever spiritually i don't know maybe that's accurate um, any rhyme or reason for why that might be i don't know they're saying that i'm not saying that i'm just repeating what you no, no, no but if let's say let's because that's not wrong so is there is there any maybe it is i don't know i mean i'm I'm, I don't know because I'm not. I, I don't know is the answer to that question. Um, I do like journey. Mm -hmm. I do like seeing a character sort of evolve over time. But I think that's in most pictures, isn't it? I imagine. Sure. Okay. I'll put forward one other God, idea. Mm -hmm. Darkness. These are pretty dark stories, and and not that there's anything wrong with that. But is yeah. there ever? A, first of all, is that reflective of? your outlook of the world or could we see as you know a future steve mcqueen film a a comedy a musical or something i mean it, or do you believe that this is just sort of what your predisposition is i think listen life isn't always a box of chocolates mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it you know i'm i tend to sort of deal want to deal with the difficult thing because that's that's you know, i want that burden i want to sort of grapple with it and other people want to sort of, you know, look at comedy or, or look at things lightly. And it's great, fantastic. I prefer to grapple with things which are difficult because they're there and, and, and somehow, you know, 
I rather go the the, the the hard path and then the easy path. I don't know. And that's me. Uh, for me, that seems very sort of, um, it's a necessity. Yeah. And I haven't got the, I haven't got the answer for it. I mean, you look, look, at, look at Billy Wilder. Look at the, the apartment. That's, that's comedy, but it's dark. You're right. You know, look at these. I mean, again, I, I just feel that um, I'm not... You know, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> I'm not the only one. You could ask Scorsese the same question. Yeah. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to him. I apologize, but you know, a lot of filmmakers are like that. Kislovsky, look at them. They're, they're all very dark. But I, look, I just think there's, there's a lot of meat on the bone. Right, right. I think that's something to sort of that you want to get, get your teeth into. For yeah. sure. Well, honor to have you on. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.